0: Hey, everybody, just a quick announcement before we get started. The episode of Back Bar that you're about to hear originally aired as Bar None in 2020. Cheers. So, you have a thing. It's your thing. You make it, you worked hard on it, but you can't sell it. And I'm not saying you're not trying hard enough or anything like that. I'm just saying that nobody, and I mean nobody, wants to buy it. There is zero market for your thing. So what do you do? Market research? Pivot your approach? Take your sales pitch back to the drawing board? Or do you find somebody else, another person who's also got a thing that they can't sell and say, hey, you know what? Let's team up. And then the two of you, now that you've got your two things that nobody wants, do you go out and find a third person? with a third thing that they can't sell and wrap that up into the whole package too. And then, after you've got all three of your unsellable things all tied up with a bow, do you then hitch all three of your endeavors to a viral marketing campaign that's centered around a novel and unproven technology? I mean, it's a strategy. And I don't know that it'd net you a lot of VC investment. But, under the right circumstances... It just might help you invent a classic cocktail. I'm Greg Benson, and this is Bar None. This episode is brought to you by Diageo Bar Academy. Learn more at diageobaracademy.com. That's D-I-A-G-E-O baracademy.com.
1: This week on Meet and 3, we celebrate Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month with an episode about memory. I've always read and sort of approach cookbooks
2: for more than the recipes. To me, they are full of narrative content and narrative value. So
1: malama aina basically means to take care of the land. For us as Hawaiians, it's taking care of our older sibling.
2: But I do remember, like, definitely feeling,
1: like, self-conscious about it, like, being the only one who kind of wasn't eating a sandwich and, like, didn't have a bag of goldfish or Lunchables.
3: Listen to Meet in 3 wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Today, we're talking about what may be the most improbable success story in all of cocktaildom, the Moscow Mule. It's comprised of three different products that no one in pre-World War II America wanted to buy, and yet it somehow went on to become one of the most enduring cocktails of the 20th century. There are a few origin stories kicking around for this drink, and they vary on the particulars, but most of them hit the same major beats pretty consistently. One day in 1941, a vodka salesman, a ginger beer brewer, and a copper mug scion are all sitting around the cock and bowl pub in Los Angeles washing down their unsuccessful endeavors when, at some point, they get to talking. Now, the divine spark of inspiration comes to them all in good time, but first we have to find out who these people were and what sorrows exactly they happened to be drowning on that particular day. And, because this is the show where we talk about history's favorite drinks and how what we drink shapes history, we're going to start with the vodka guy first. John Martin was president of Hoobline Incorporated in 1939, when he bought the rights to a struggling brand called Smirnoff. Before Prohibition, Hoobline had been a respected player in the liquor imports game, but after that got shot to hell in 1920, they'd coasted along on the sales of their most famous product, A1 Steak Sauce. Maybe that's why the company's directors were less than thrilled with Martin's purchase, or maybe it's because the brand was, by all measurable standards, spectacularly tanking. Nevertheless, John Martin paid out $14,000, and for his trouble, he got a tiny operation in Connecticut, run by a Ukrainian immigrant named Rudolf Kennet, that at the time was America's only producer of vodka. Remember, this was the 1930s, and the taste of Prohibition and all that bathtub gin were still very much on America's taste buds. Whiskey was dominating America's liquor sales, and for good reason. If something was brown, it meant you could trust it. It had been distilled and aged and bottled by someone who presumably knew what they were doing. If something was clear, there was a chance it could kill you. Age spirits meant that somebody somewhere along the line cared, but who really knew where clear spirits came from? Was this actually a favorite tipple of the ancient czars, or something a guy who knew a guy cooked up in his basement the night before? John Martin soon came to know what poor Rudy Canette had already learned the hard way. Getting Americans to drink vodka wasn't going to be easy.
1: The big difficulty, of course, was to get a bartender to even try it. He'd say, what, drink that stuff? Russian dynamite and drop dead? No, sir.
0: Meanwhile, on the West Coast, a man named Jack Morgan had a similar predicament. While he was in school in Great Britain, Morgan developed a taste for ginger beer, but he couldn't find a brand with sufficient kick back home. At the time, the country was obsessed with ginger ale and didn't have much appetite for its spicy, rambunctious cousin. So Morgan, who owned the Cock and Bull Pub in West Hollywood, decided to market his own brand under his bar's name and ran face first into the exact same problem John Martin had. People weren't buying it. So now we've got two guys with similar brands, similar problems, even similar names, who can't sell their products out of a paper bag.
1: I owned the Cock and Bull restaurant in Los Angeles, So I had cock and bull ginger beer made for me in Los Angeles. And of course, I couldn't sell it because Americans didn't like ginger beer, they liked ginger ale.
0: Yeah, I know, they even sound the same too. But then of course, there's the third ingredient. And no, I'm not talking about lime juice. Anybody who's telling you they invented lime juice is trying to sell you something and it's probably roses and you probably
3: shouldn't buy it. What I'm talking about is the mug. So I think it's like actually a delicious drink, but that alone wouldn't do it because nobody's going to come in and say, oh, yeah, you know, I'd like a vodka drink and put some ginger beer in it and throw this in there. Like it's as a customer in a bar, there's only so many things I know. To get a better
0: handle on the economics behind the mule and why and just how this whole three part scheme actually worked, I talked to Robert Smith, the host of Planet Money on NPR. We met up at the Brooklyn Central Library, where we definitely did not drink Moscow mules, and we talked about the market forces behind mixology.
3: And so even though the drink itself might have been popular on taste, without the, like, gimmicky aspect to it, the name and the cup, like, especially, you know, the, the copper cup, because if you, if you don't have that, then I, it wouldn't be on my top 10, 20 drinks. I wouldn't, I'd forget about it.
0: Even with a lot of time to think about it, I don't know that I can name you another drink that's so inexorably tied to its glassware. Maybe the martini, but I've gotten martinis in coupe glasses and Nick and Nora's before, and I've been perfectly satisfied. But if you serve me a Moscow Mule in a highball or a rocks glass or anything that I can see through, it just doesn't feel right, which is why it's weird that we know so many little tiny details about Vodka John and Ginger Jack and almost nothing about who brought the mugs. A lot of the origin stories provide similar details. She was an immigrant. She inherited a copper mine. She was dating one of the two guys we've met already. But other than that, there's next to nothing. No personal details, no background info. It's as if after that day in 1941, our mystery woman just disappears. That is until 2014.
4: This is JJ Resnick. My great-grandmother, Sophie Berezinski, actually invented the Moscow Mule back in 1941.
0: Six years ago, JJ Resnick launched Moscow Copper Company. Their mission was twofold. Sell reproductions of the original mule mug and rescue great-grandma Sophie from decades of obscurity. And Moscow Copper's website didn't pull any punches in putting 75 years of vagaries to bed.
2: In 1941, I was a woman on a mission. I had immigrated to the United States from Russia and was carrying a heavy burden. Two thousand solid copper mugs. My father owned and operated a copper factory in Russia known as the Moscow Copper Company. And I had created the design for the original copper mug that is now so famous. But neither I nor my father were able to sell the mugs in Russia, so the decision was made that I and the mugs would journey to America. After all, it was well known that America was the land of opportunity. However, after some time, the mugs seemed destined for the scrap heap in America, too. My husband, Max, was tired of the copper mugs cluttering the house, and issued me an ultimatum. Find a buyer for the mugs, or I'm tossing them. I couldn't bear to see the solid copper mugs I had designed and manufactured with my father end up in a landfill. I began desperately seeking out a buyer, walking door to door in Hollywood in search of a restaurant or lounge owner interested in the mugs. During one of my long days in search of a buyer for the mugs, I walked into the Cock and Bull pub at just the right time, on the right day in 1941, to help create a cocktail America would fall in love with.
4: I had never met this woman, but I had heard so many great things about her, and I was not old enough to consume her famous invention, so it it was just something, as a kid, I would sit back and listen and just take it all in and, and think, wow, this woman really was something else.
0: It didn't take long after that fateful day for the Moscow Mule to take off. Cock and Bull's prime location on the Sunset Strip certainly didn't hurt the mule's celebrity exposure. And a year after it was invented, the drink made its first appearance in print, name dropped by a gossip columnist as a new craze among the movie set. But there have been plenty of other drinks, just as tasty, if not more so, that have gotten their fair share of sunny early press only to wither in obscurity a few months later. It was the marketing savvy of one John Martin that really cemented the mule's place in America's hearts, minds, And wallets.
1: I'd go into a bar with a Moscow mule mug, a bottle of Smirnoff, a bottle of cock and bull ginger beer, and offer to make the bartender, for free, a drink if he would just try it. And I said, You know, if you will try it, I will give you a picture of you doing it, which you can immediately take home to your wife. He said, How are you going to do that? And I said, Well, that's my business.
0: In 1947, a scientist named Edwin Land invented the Polaroid camera and, by extension, instant photography. Now, sure, there were plenty of people at the time who were intrigued and amused by the idea of an on-the-spot photo, but it was John Martin who caught into the Polaroid's marketing potential real quick.
1: So he would sip a little Moscow Mule, and he said, tastes pretty good. And I would snap a Polaroid picture of him. In fact, I'd snap two. One for him to take home to his wife, and one I would use in the bar across the street.
0: Going from bar to bar like this, Martin assembled a literal Facebook, a binder of Polaroids that he'd show to every new bartender he encountered that eventually added up to one inevitable conclusion. See? Everybody else is drinking one. This approach brought fame, fortune, and national acclaim to John and Jack alike. Their businesses, the same ones they couldn't give away before, they were flourishing, while both of them were remembered for the rest of their lives as the inventors of the Moscow Mule. The publicity, combined with a Smirnov advertising blitz, helped launch vodka into the upper echelon of liquor sales in the United States, a place it has yet to relinquish to this day. Even the Cock and Bull's bartender, Wes Price, got in on the action, telling a reporter years later that he'd invented the Moscow Mule himself in a desperate attempt to clear out inventory that just wasn't moving. To which, come on, if you've worked in a bar, that's another highly plausible origin story right there. So, why not Sophie? Sophie. I mean, we know exactly who John Martin and Jack Morgan were. We know what they were doing. We know their histories, their backgrounds. We know almost every single step that led them to the Cock and Bull pub that day in 1941. Why don't we hear anything about the woman with the mugs until 75 years later? We can certainly lay a heaping helping of blame at the feet of our good friend Sexism, but she just disappears so completely that it feels like there has to be more to it than that. And the thing about Sophie's story is that, if you really look at it, a few of the details don't add up. The claim is that Sophie's father owned a copper mine in Russia and bequeathed her the task of selling the mugs when he couldn't do it himself. But I couldn't find any record of Sophie's father owning a factory of any sort before he emigrated from Russia, and his passenger entry form from when he first arrived lists him as a painter. Granted, this wouldn't be the first time that someone told a half-truth on an entry card, but even if you did own a copper plant back in the old country, that's a lot of luggage. And there's the political situation to consider. After he rose to power, Stalin nationalized all military essential industries in 1927, including copper. Which means Sophie was either somehow able to sneak out of Russia with several hundred pounds of state property, or the poor woman made it out before the mines were seized by the state and was stuck schlepping thousands of mugs around for decades. And then there's another woman in the mix. And this one comes from a credible source.
1: Morgan had a girlfriend. A great, big, beautiful, buxom woman by the name of Osaline Schmidt who inherited the copper factory from her father.
0: Near the end of his life, before he died in 1986, John Martin recorded an interview narrating his hand in the creation of the Moscow Mule. Jack Morgan shows up right on cue, and all the other details are there, but instead of a Russian woman named Sophie, Martin points to a German woman named Ozalie. I called up JJ from Moscow Copper Company, and I asked him right when a lowrider happened to be going by if he'd seen John Martin's interview. And yeah, he had. And he had even more questions than I did.
4: But when I watched it, it blew me away because he's he's talking about uh, Sophie, the, you know, being part of the um, equation with the copper mugs. But he gives her a different name. And he he says that she was somebody else's girlfriend. And now, you know, I can't remember exactly what he says on there, but the point is he he calls her Ozeline Schmidt.
0: Now, I couldn't find anything to confirm or deny that such a woman even existed. And given that all I had to go on was a name and a year, that's not particularly surprising. But there is one troubling detail about the Ozaline story, and for that matter, just about every other origin story for the Moscow Mule. Most witnesses seem to agree that the copper mug was the contribution of somebody's girlfriend. Jack, John, it goes back and forth as to who, but most people agree that she was dating one of them. And Sophie, keep in mind, was married. But on the other hand, if it wasn't her then who was it that came by in 1941 with an open mind and a back-breaking surplus of copper mugs? Ginger beer may be delicious and vodka may be... fine, but those two things alone don't make you a classic cocktail in the golden age of Hollywood. And I know, I went over and over and over every single creation myth that I could find, and in not a single one of them does every last detail add up. No matter how credible an individual recounting may be, there's always some name, some date, some tiny annoying detail that doesn't quite fit. And the more I looked at all these stories, the more I realized if I was gonna find the truth about the mule, I was gonna have to find Sophie first. That's coming up after the break. Hey, everybody. It's Greg from Back Bar here taking a break from our regularly scheduled programming because I have a very special guest here with me. Uh, Patrick Abolos is here to talk about uh, his experience with Diageo Bar Academy and World Class and what he's up to now. Patrick, how are you, man? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm very well. So to lead, what projects are you involved in right now? And if you were to say, hi, I'm Patrick Abolos and I am... What's the end of that sentence?
5: So... I am the managing partner and owner of Night Shift and I've I've been in the industry for 13 years. i been in culinary and you know ended up behind a bar and that's kind of the journey that I started with and opening a bar called Night Shift here in Houston with my business partner Justin Ware and we're uh, I'm actually here in the space today so pretty excited to just kind of be on here and talking about the bar academy.
0: That's awesome. So how did you how did you get started in this world? What was your you said you've been in it for 13 years. What was your first
5: position like? So I started as a dishwasher back home in uh, Silver City, New Mexico. It's kind of where I got my, my feet in the industry and then got really into cooking uh, in high school and ended up starting becoming a line chef after I started working as a dishwasher. And then from there, I decided I wanted to go to, almost, almost went to culinary school, didn't go to culinary school, decided to get my business degree in hospitality management and then kind of went down that path and has kind of led me here to where I'm at today. So it's pretty exciting. So let me ask you this,
0: if there had been, if the choice wasn't uh, culinary school or no culinary school, if the choice was culinary school or bartending school, if such a thing existed on the level that culinary school does, what would you have chosen?
5: See, that's a great question, because if I was going to go back in time and tell my younger self what I'd want to do, I really, really wanted to be a chef and work in a kitchen. Um, And then I realized I was missing that part of having that guest interaction. And that's where I kind of fell behind the bar, because the bar is kind of like cooking, if you think about it. We mix with different spirits and liquors, and it's building around kind of the same flavor concepts as a as a dish. This way, we we do the training when I talk about cocktails, and but you have that guest sitting in front of you, and you get to see that immediate reaction or gratification when you just hand them a really good cocktail, and it's what, exactly what they wanted.
0: So, talk to me about um, why why you think there wasn't, especially not thirteen years ago, but even you know until very recently, why you think there wasn't uh, a good bartending class option out there. There's well it's 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 a very self-taught trade. And I guess it's a two-part question. Why is that? And is that the way that it should be?
5: I mean, if you think about a lot of like technical and vocational careers, a lot of it's about um, you have a you have a mentor and an apprentice. So like when you think about like welders, there's there's apprentice welders and it's one of those things where you learn from your predecessors what the skills were. And I think bartending is, is very much a technical vocational specialization. And I think if you think about in the past, that's basically what they had. They didn't have technology like we did and we do now. And I think a lot of what we're seeing is is bartending schools are going more digital, just like Diageo Bart Academy is a whole digital platform. It's pretty much a one-stop shop for everything you need. It's been in existence for 10 years, actually. And um, most recently, like, it's really easy to sign up for. You just go online, you put your information in, you have access to all this information that, that um, Diageo has been acquiring over all these years. That's in a one-stop shop, and I think that's kind of what's great now, that especially with the pandemic time, that a lot of bartenders have been at home and it's this online platform where you can go and just access it at 24 seven, and you have that knowledge right there at your fingertips where you don't actually have to go work at a big bar with a really big name bartender to kind of learn from them it's stare at your fingertips. And I think that's what's great about the accessibility that we have nowadays.
0: Absolutely. and And it's something about, I love the egalitarian nature of it. You know, it's not like, you know, you have to, show up at a certain time. You have to like take off work to go there because you can literally log on at four o'clock in the morning after you get off of a shift if you want to like, you know, take a class before before the adrenaline of a day's work wears off and you crash out. And you don't have to shell out a bunch of money for it because it's free, which I really enjoy. And I think that maybe, is, is that the key? Is the key making the education so that everyone can do it?
5: yeah absolutely I think that's a hundred percent it's about like me and Justin have talked like very heavily about uh, what we're gonna do at night shift and just like cocktail recipes are not it's not proprietary information what we do is not proprietary information if someone wants to find out what we're doing to clarify this juice that's going in our house highball we're more than happy to, to share a recipe when specs with them.
0: I love it. I love that people are getting to a point where they are concerned about the the ABV of uh, their drinks and they're making these choices in these decisions based on their health. Um, is there any other resources on there for, you know, leading a healthy lifestyle? Because that's something we talk about a lot in the bar industry these days is now that it's more of a career that people can do for, you know, not just for a couple years, but for decades. You know, it's, it's demanding work. You've got to take care of yourself. you got to take care of your body, and you got to take care of your
5: mind. Are there resources there for that as well? Yeah, there's there's master classes that are available on the Bar Academy as well. So it's live discussions that um, national finalists have had with other people or industry vets have come in and just had discussions about bartender bar wellness. And just as far as the IG Bar Academy, like again, it's, it's really easy to sign up um, go online and put your email. They do send out emails every so often, you in or out. And pretty much you have all this information at, at, at your fingertips. You have podcasts, you have all the calculators, you have downloads and stuff. you can be something that I recommend, we do some consulting as well, like consulting clients, I recommend like, hey, sign up, there's information on how to run a bar program here. Like I can teach, I can spend time and teach you, but it's all there at your fingertips. And just, it's there, just put yourself, it's there, it's free, do it when you can. And at the end of your shift, you can just j- jump online. Um, it's really good because it's anywhere from 35 to 60 minutes long, depending on which class you go in, that you get certificates at the end of each one that you can send, hand over to your supervisor or you can add to your resume or portfolio. So take advantage of it. It's free. It's free. It's free, free education. Why not?
0: Nothing beats free, right? Yeah. Well, uh, Patrick Abelos from Nightshift. thank you so, so much for uh, joining us today on the show. And for more info about what we were just talking about here, you can go to diageobaracademy.com, log in, see what's going on, check out some of these courses. Totally, totally gratis. That's diageobaracademy.com. Check it out. And thanks. Listeners, I want to tell you about some mighty fine spirits that are coming out of the state of Texas. I discovered them at a Tales of the Cocktail tasting room two years ago, and you know that I wouldn't be here telling you about them if I didn't think they were worth telling about. Violet Crown Spirits are the first people ever to produce absinthe in the Lone Star State, which would be impressive in and of itself, but it's doubly so because they're making two of them. Their classic emerald absinthe layers fresh cut hay and meadow sweet notes over a rich foundation of black licorice, and their opal absinthe is a bright and fascinating addition to any bar. And don't sleep on their jasmine and elderflower liqueurs or the Midnight Marigold tomorrow either, trust me. To learn more and find out where they're near you, visit violetcrownspirits.com and tell them that I sent you. Cheers. Breath inside his hands and never gave it back. And we drank By the 1950s and 60s, vodka and its radiant copper golden boy, the Moscow Mule, had arrived. When poor Rudy Kinnett was selling Smirnoff back in 1934, he was barely able to sell 6,000 cases a year. But between 1950 and 1951, Vodka sales in the United States quadrupled, and by 1954, production reached 1 million gallons a year. And then 10 million in 1961. Vodka was new, it was sophisticated, it was sexy, it was the perfect beverage for a country that couldn't wait to shake off its agrarian roots and show that it could guide the world into the new millennium with class and panache, while of course still getting lit at the same time. Even David A. Embry, author of one of the bar world's most seminal texts, The Fine Art of Mixing Drinks, he came around to the merits of the Russian spirit. And this is after he'd previously cemented his reputation as the original guy who hated vodka before it was cool. Martin and company knew they were onto something special. Vodka was novel, smooth, exotic, but not too exotic. This is still America after all. But most importantly, it was not your daddy's liquor. So they did the only thing that made sense. They sold and sold and sold again. They ran ads featuring smartly-dressed men riding wooden mules with pretty redheads. They urged the public to throw mule parties. And they ran a promotion by which, if you mailed the good folks at Smirnoff three of your hard-earned dollars, you too could be the proud owner of your very own set of copper mugs. Back in the Brooklyn Library, not over Moscow mules, I asked Robert Smith why exactly this worked, why three things that nobody wanted became one thing that everyone was obsessed with. In other words, how in the hell did they pull this off?
3: It's bundling. I mean, they have bundled this together with the added benefit that it is tasty and and an attractive drink. And there's just no way um, any human being would buy a copper Mug for home, but when I went home to uh, my parents' house in Utah uh, a year ago, my mother's like, "Hey, would you like a Moscow Mule," and I was like, "Oh, you know, you, you're gonna have to need you're gonna need a copper cup," and she's like, "Oh, they were on sale at Walmart." She bought like six copper cups at the big Walmart. <laughs> oh, you know, for like seven dollars or something, which uh, probably not pure copper, uh, <laughs> copper colored cups, but the fact that the Walmart in rural Utah was stacking it was stocking these cups like that is an amazing that shows you how well they've done at marketing it
0: bundling isn't anything that morgan and martin came up with on their own it's a technique that's been around for ages but it does provide the bundler the advantage of being able to say what no no these aren't three old things this is one new thing
3: and, and, and you wouldn't buy a six-pack of ginger beer because you'd never use it up, you know. Obviously, you'd have limes and, and vodka. So I think by bundling them together, it, it ensures the sales of all these items. And uh, it does create something that feels like a package. It feels like you're doing a thing. Like when my mom brings out the Moscow mules, she feels like, oh, I'm not just serving drinks. Like I'm doing a whole thing.
0: As time went on and the Cold War heated up, the strange bedfellows behind the Moscow Mule reinvented themselves again. U.S.-Russia relations weren't as chummy as they used to be, and after an anti-communist protest by a New York bartender's union that didn't quite grasp the subtleties of the drink's origin, Martin & Co. decided to rebrand their brainchild as the Smirnoff Mule. Because they weren't stupid. They knew they had lightning in a bottle, And they weren't about to let a little geopolitical conflict cheat them out of running a perfectly good idea into the ground. So, they doubled down on ads. They pushed a recipe with 7-Up instead of Ginger Beer. They ran a series of magazine spots featuring a, at the time, far less problematic Woody Allen. And then, they did something really bizarre. Given the success of The Shrug and The Mashed Potato at discotheques across the country, the marketing folks at Smirnoff looked at their hit cocktail and saw absolutely no reason why it shouldn't also be a hit dance craze, too. The company hired two musicians, Skitch Henderson and Carmen McRae, to design a jingle around a sort of half-baked Watusi that they'd commissioned from acclaimed dancer Killer Joe Pirro. Now, I don't have Proof that a bunch of ad execs who cut their teeth before World War II commissioned a discotheque hit with all the nuance and cultural understanding of a semi-retiree asking his intern to write him a meme, I just have the song. And frankly, it speaks for itself.
3: Stand stubborn, stop sudden, look cool,
0: turning. it's not great. But really, it doesn't need to be. This was the height of post-war capitalism. America had cash, it had power, and it had something to prove. Buying stuff had temporarily replaced baseball as our national pastime. So if you couldn't move your bottle as a spirit, try it as a cocktail. And if it worked as a cocktail, why not a number one hit single? This country has always been a place where if you could dream it, you could make it. But in the 1960s, if you made it, you had a moral obligation to sell the shit out of it too. Which is probably why the mug stuck around as long as it has. Over the years, a couple of books will recommend a tin mug or an earthenware mug. But even through the cocktail wasteland of the 70s and 80s, the Moscow Mule and the copper mug stayed
3: pretty inseparable. And Robert has a theory as to why. But the Moscow Mule also has this virtue of signaling, which is you can see from across a bar if someone is drinking a Moscow Mule, right? Because they, you know, and it's nice the way the copper, you know, beads up and even gets a little frosty if you've got super cold. And when you see it, it's like definitely a signal like, oh, that person isn't drinking sort of a generic brown cocktail or some sort of froofy fruit drink. And, you know, I don't know. It just feels like, oh, like, look at that guy, like. Ooh, fancy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> JJ from Moscow Copper agrees. A mule just isn't a mule without the mug.
4: The copper mug is everything. I mean, vodka, ginger beer, and, and lime together in a glass is okay. But, I mean, it truly has a different flavor profile without the mug. You know, it's just not a Moscow mule without the mug. That's the bottom line.
0: The mug might have been taking a victory lap, but as far as tracking down J.J.'s great-grandmother, I wasn't having a lot of luck. I'd found Sophie in the National Archives, listed in the 1930 and 1940 census as living in Brooklyn with her husband Max. Granted, that would have given her a chance to get to L.A. in time to invent the Moscow mule, but she'd have been cutting it pretty close. And then there's another document, a petition to be naturalized from 1950, In this form, which Sophie signed, she lists her date of birth as New Year's Day 1896 and her date of entry into the U.S. as April of 1906. Now, 19th century Russian birth records should always be taken with a grain of salt, but in light of this and a few other documents I came across, it seems very likely that Sophie was living in this country sometime before her 10th birthday. I need to take a beat to underline something here. This isn't a hacky expose podcast. There is no supervillain conspiracy, and JJ Resnick is not out to deceive anybody. While I was working on this story, I had multiple conversations with JJ and others at Moscow Copper, and I found them to be honest, straightforward, and forthright. They're not trying to pull the wool over anybody's eyes, and they're certainly not cackling to themselves while they twirl their mustaches in a bathtub full of money. Yes. There are parts of their story that don't add up, but those parts are stories. Every family's got them. That one about that distant relative that we believe because sure, we share genetic material with the protagonist, but it's fun. And it's just that little bit nicer to live in a world where it actually happened. After I found Sophie's petition to be naturalized, the one with her immigration info and date of birth, I sent it to JJ. A couple of weeks later, We jumped on the phone to talk about it. Do you think based on the document that I've shown you that Sophie designed the mugs herself?
4: Um, I mean, to be perfectly honest, I'm I'm not sure still how I feel about this. It's something that's just, it's been resonating. Um, You know, as I mentioned to you before, if, if the documents that you've discovered are all entirely accurate um, you know and she really did come over earlier than i had been told then i suppose i suppose anything's possible right but it's still, it really doesn't change i feel about sophie or the mule or the mug i mean i know what i've been told and And that's what I'll continue believing until somebody's able to show me something that proves, as you said before, without a shadow of a doubt or a sliver, that what I've been told is not entirely accurate.
0: And here's the thing about Sophie's story. In spite of the details here and there that don't add up, there's a lot that checks out too. Like, we know that in April of 1940, she and Max are living in Brooklyn with their kids. But by 1950, She's out near Playa del Rey in Los Angeles, just a half-hour drive from West Hollywood and the Cock and Bull Pub. The closest thing we have to a specific date for the mule comes from cocktail writer Ted Saucier, who puts it, shortly before Pearl Harbor, or, in other words, toward the end of 1941. Given that sometime in the 40s Sophie and her family moved to L.A., that fateful day at Morgan's Bar falls solidly within her timeline. But what about Vodka John's claim that it was Ginger Jack's girlfriend who brought the copper to the party? Like I said, I couldn't find anything to prove one way or the other that this Ozeline Schmidt even existed. But there's another possibility as well.
4: It's kind of a um, sensitive subject, but we, what we believe is Grandma Sophie was having a little bit of a fling with John Martin back in the day. So... You know, we, they, they were both married people, and so it's not, obviously not something that, you know, you can cut this out, <laughs> edit it out if you want, or you can throw it out there um, for the spicy rating, but,
0: you know. <laughs> Which would explain the girlfriend angle, and why Martin deflected in that interview after going out of his way to signal boost our mystery woman's curves. So if Sophie was in Los Angeles, and if she found herself romantically attached to the owner of Smirnoff, where does that leave her place in all of this? Given what I know, I can't say with confidence that she designed the mug herself, but it's plausible, maybe even likely, that she was there on that fateful day in 1941.
1: I think it needs more Smirnoff. No, what it needs is more ginger beer. You put too much ginger beer and no one's going to drink it. Put too much Smirnoff and it's going to kill someone. People like a lot of
0: people. So, picture this. Sophie, newly arrived in Los Angeles, arranges a meeting with her secret lover, John. He promises her they'll go to lunch, but instead he takes her along on business. Again. And so she's stuck sitting at some bar while John and his buddy Jack argue about how to get rid of his ginger beer and John's vodka. And meanwhile, she is bored and a little pissed off and wondering why nobody's asked her advice yet. Because for crying out loud, she's Russian. If anybody in that room knows how to sell vodka, you'd think. But no, she just has to listen to them carp and carp and carp and she is so mad and so hungry and she swears to God that if she has to hear just one more asinine idea she's just gonna
2: Here, use this What? A mug? Yes, your drink was boring It missed something It has it now
1: Hmm, huh Quite good, not bad
2: We did it, well done I am leaving As for what
0: actually happened? The honest-to-God, 1,000% lock-solid, I went back and witnessed it in a time machine with my own two-eyes truth? I have no idea. And honestly, I don't think the mule cares. Maybe Sophie grabbed a bunch of mugs at a yard sale. Maybe she found a secret warehouse full of them. Maybe Wes the bartender did the whole thing himself because he was sick of tripping over that one stupid case of Smirnoff in the basement. Whatever the story, the Moscow Mule just clicked. And I'm sure it'll get around to fretting the details any
3: day now. I don't know why it feels special and retro. I mean, when you tell the story, it seems like a lot of other drinks. Eh, You had this, you had this, put this, combine this. It's not that unique a story. But maybe it does come down to when you, see, when you see a Moscow Mule, like you remember it, like you remember it. Like can you see it in a TV show, you see it in a bar, you're like, oh, it's a Moscow Mule. Like it like triggers something. And however it came about, somebody found a little piece of marketing magic, you know, that turned normal things into something that felt retro and foreign and uh, exotic, right? And so, you know, at that point, it's all story. Like, who cares? Like, add a little more story to the story, right, (laughs) you know?
0: JJ sold Moscow Copper in 2019, but he's still committed to telling Sophie's story. And I mean, it's a family legacy. How could he not be? During our last conversation, I asked him if knowing what I'd found out about her had changed anything.
4: There's a chance, I suppose, um, that everything, 100% of what I told, or what I was told was inaccurate but I don't know that for certain without the time machine. And so I, it's just one of those things that to me, if that part wasn't entirely accurate and although, you know, everything else was, it's, it doesn't um, change much for me really.
0: There are a few lessons we can learn from the Moscow Mule. If your product isn't moving, tie it to another one. If people aren't buying, tell them everyone else is. And always, whether you're selling with a laptop or an instant camera or a really crappy jingle, always have a good story. Because this is a free country and a free market. And if your story is the God's honest, holy Bible truth, well, fantastic. But you better make damn sure that it's fun, too. This episode of Backbar was written, researched, and directed by me, Greg Benson, with research assistance from Katherine Erickson. Keegan Cassidy and I produced while Ryan Laney scored, edited, and mixed our show. You can find his work at ryanlaneymusic.com. Backbar is powered by Simplecast. A huge thank you to our two guests on this show. Robert Smith is a host of Planet Money on NPR, which, if you don't subscribe, you should fix that. Like, right now, on this device, do it right now. And a J.J. Resnick, who, along with everyone else at Moscow Copper that I talked to, was unbelievably generous with his time and was much, much cooler than he was obliged to be about me poking around in his family history. I wish him and everyone at MCC the best of luck. Thanks as well to Sasha and Lena Prokrova for lending me their expertise on Russian history, as well as our amazing cast. John Martin was played by Elliot Kashner. Jack Morgan was played by Elliot Kashner. And Sophie Berezinski was brought to life by none other than the wonderfully talented Carolyn Kashner. Thank you so much for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Follow me on Instagram at 10proofGreg, that's hundred with numbers, not letters. And you can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. HRN is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Do you want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, like, say, this one right here. Tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. On our next show, we're looking at bitter times, bitter flavors, and what is, according to many, the greatest cocktail of all time. That's in two weeks for more on history's favorite drinks and how what we drink shapes history.
4: Cheers.